Thank you, Dan, and choir and instrumentalists for beautiful worship today. Because of a power outage at the television station, we were not on the air this morning because of the ice storms. And I told a little story, and I told it because we weren't on the air, I, assuming we're on the radio, but I, I'll suppose that this is safe. A lady went into the local Bible bookstore here, the big one, chain store uh, in Amarillo, and she asked the book salesman, she said, I want to buy a Q Bible, you know, the alphabet, the, I want to buy a Q Bible. And he thought for a minute and he said, ma'am, that may be a new translation that I'm not aware of, but I just don't know anything about a Q Bible. She said, oh, well, everybody at First Baptist has one. The guy stands up and says, turn in your Q Bible to page whatever, and they all turn their Bible, of course. And so after that dear soul thought that we all use Q Bibles, if First Baptist has had a new fangled Q Bible, she sure, certainly wanted a copy. I've listened to our staff and they do say Q Bible. It sounds like Q Bible. And so that is Pew Bible with a P and we're trying to help you find your passage. Last week we began a sermon series around four words of discipleship. Words that will mean much to our church family and the months ahead. And the first word last week was abiding. Jesus said in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. And if you abide in me, you bear much fruit. The word was abiding. The word today from Philippians 1.6, Philippians 1, 1-11 is becoming that we are to be becoming in Christ Jesus. Secular psychologists call for their clients to live in the present. The mantra is live in the moment. Such clinicians argue that most negative thoughts in our lives concern the past or worry about the future. And so if they can get you to live in the moment rather than the past or the future, it will be the best mental health for you. So therapists send us the signals that we need to focus on today, not yesterday or tomorrow. For example, I, I read an article in Psychology Today entitled, The Art of Now, Six Steps to Living in the Moment. The Art of Now, Six Steps to Living in the Moment. Rejecting this clarion call of our culture, Christians, Paul asserts, are to live. Now listen carefully. You're not to live in the now. You are to live in the future in the present. You are to live in the future in the present. We'll unpack that in a moment. He calls upon the Philippians to live today as if they're already on the future, in the future. Well, there was a, a study at Stanford University decades ago. They had a professor of psychology named Walter Michelle. And Walter brought in four-year-olds into the room one by one. And he set them down at the table. And he took out a, a nice marshmallow. And he said, you can eat that marshmallow right now if you want to. But there's another choice. If you're willing to wait 15 minutes, then I'll give you another marshmallow and you can eat both marshmallows. So you're four years old, you walk in the room, the choice is clear. I can eat one marshmallow right now, no waiting, or if I wait 15 minutes, then I 
double my income, double my produce, I get two marshmallows. And he wanted to see, would four-year-olds have the mental capacity to wait to think about not the now, but think about the future? As a result of the test, what do you think happened? 70% of four-year-olds ate the one marshmallow now and said, forget about the second marshmallow. 70%. said, meh, I'll wait 15 minutes for another marshmallow. Now, this test has been replicated in Brazil and Japan, and it doesn't, it's not a cultural thing. It really doesn't matter what culture you're in. The replicated tests show that wherever you are, about two-thirds of four-year-olds will say, I'm going I'm to take the bird in the hand. I'm going to take the marshmallow right now, and I'm going to eat it. And only one-third, 30, 33%, no matter the culture, are willing to think beyond the now and into the 15-minute future, the distant future for a four-year-old. Well, it gets more interesting. They followed 15 years later these students and discovered that the four-year-olds, when they were 19 years of age, they followed up, the four-year-olds who were willing to wait 15 minutes to double their income, scored an average of 250 points better on their SAT. The same kids. 250 points better on average. Now, how could that be, and and why would that be be so? In fact, they discovered whatever their field, whether it was academic or athletic or artistic, it didn't matter, that the four-year-olds who were willing to double their income by imagining a better future than the now, all excelled above their peers who wanted the one marshmallow now. You see, those who are willing to wait the full 15 minutes, which is an eternity for a four-year-old for that second marshmallow, had solved what psychologists would call the time paradox. Future-focused people have long-range goals, and they make today's decisions based on not a better now, but a better future. You following me? They can look to tomorrow and beyond. This keeps them ambitiously working and saving and going to school and planning for a better, not today, but a better tomorrow. They have the self-discipline and the ability to delay the gratification, the one marshmallow, for the better future. They settle for something better tomorrow than taking something good today. On the other hand, people who live in the present, Rather than the future, they study those students too. They always go for short-term payoffs. They're impulsive. They're playful. But they are the least likely to be successful. What does Paul say to the church at Philippi about living in the future in the present? Well, let's take a look at it. Paul is in prison. He's in chains. Probably Timothy is by his side. Let's look at Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Now, here's the order of a Greco-Roman letter of antiquity. The first element, I'm going to give you four elements you'll look for in Paul's letters or in any uh, letter of antiquity. And the first thing is the sender. Now, we don't do it that way. We put the sender at the last, sincerely, Howie or Joel or Rebecca. 
In fact, have you ever gotten a really long letter from somebody and maybe you were really like what you're reading or didn't like it at all? You rushed to the last page to see who sent that letter if you didn't know. Well, not so. They did it better way back then. They told you right up front, the sender, Paul and Timothy. Paul's in prison, literally probably in chains in Rome. And Timothy is probably listening to every word that Paul is dictating. And Timothy is acting as a secretary, big word, amanuensis, taking down all that Paul is saying. Well, how does he describe themselves? Paul and Timothy, they are douloi. They are slaves. Your translation probably niceted it up and said servants, but no, it's the word slave. They are bond slaves. Now, slaves were common in the Greco-Roman world. Now, get out of your mind the horrible racial hatred of American slavery. It wasn't exactly like that, but the slave still belonged to another, submitted himself to another, and he wasn't his own. So the idea of being a bond slave is the idea of humility and servanthood. Paul and Timothy, the slaves, those who belong to Christ. Well, lest we kind of be taken back by the fact that God wants to call us slaves. I want you to look back at, over at chapter 2 and verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a doulos. The same thing that Paul calls Himself and Timothy is said also of Jesus. Jesus is a bond slave being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name which is above every name. Cinder, Paul and Timothy, Duloi, bond servants of Christ, has also submitted himself as a slave in the crucifixion and the resurrection. Well, after the sender, then we get the recipients. To whom is the letter written? To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. So it's to the saints and the leadership of the church at Philippi. Now, the word saints probably doesn't mean what you think it means. We think of it as an extra good Christian, right? Maybe uh, the language like, oh my goodness, she does so much for the poor. She is a saint, right? Or in Catholic language, it's an actual official title. One is actually declared to have the status of sainthood, right? Well, those are neither biblical uses of the word saint. In fact, I've got really good news for today. As this very moment, I declare that according to the scriptural use of saints, everybody in this room has made officially sainthood. You have. It's the word for all of those who are covenant people of God. It's an Old Testament word. It comes from ancient Israel, from Exodus 9, 6, where it is said of Israel, my people, here's our word, a holy nation. It's the people who subject themselves to God's service. And so a better translation would go something like this. Paul and 
Timothy, bond slaves in Christ Jesus to God's holy people in Philippi. Sender, Paul and Timothy, recipient, God's holy people, and the specific place of Philippi. Well, there's a, a third part of a letter of antiquity, and that's the greeting. Now, Paul changes that greeting and makes it his own. He always uses two words, most often, grace and peace. See it there in verse 2? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you think of any two better words to greet someone with than those words? Grace. What is grace? Grace is all that we have as God's people. It is God's gift to us, our forgiveness accomplished in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So the grace gift to you, grace, God's forgiveness. And what results when we have God's forgiveness? We are at peace. The, the next word plays off the Jewish idea of shalom. Grace and shalom. Shalom was that thing that every Jew longed for and leaned into that day when all would be at peace. Paul and Timothy, Paul talking, Timothy writing, bond slaves of Christ Jesus to the holy people in the area of Philippi, all of God's forgiveness and God's peace to you. It's, it's the way the letter starts. And then there's a fourth element in an ancient letter, and most of them, unless Paul's really mad at you, and then you don't get this fourth element. And, and you might look at Galatians, and you won't see this element in Galatians because he's, he's really mad at the Galatians. But in, in most all other letters, there's that fourth element, and it's a prayer or it's a thanksgiving. Look, look how it goes in verse 4. Always offering prayer with joy and my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work and you will perfect it unto the day of Christ Jesus. A thanksgiving. In my prayers, I give thanks for you. And why does he give thanks? For their participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, what is this participation in the gospel? I think it's a lot of things, but it starts with the fact that the church at Philippi was the most fi financially generous to Paul. And he viewed the fact that they gave him money, that freed him up to preach the gospel, that they were participating in the proclamation of the gospel, and they were a part of the series of saving souls by their financial endorsement of Paul. And so from your participation in the gospel from the very first day until now, I give thanks. You, you have koinonia. You have fellowship in the gospel. But it's more than that. It is also their living out of their faith in a very pagan world. They were living out who they, who they were. Well, notice what he says, grace to you and peace. And then the thanksgiving I, I always offering, uh, verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. That begins at Thanksgiving. I thank my God. Now, my God, my God. There is only one God, the God, Yahweh, creator, sustainer, savior, redeemer. All, all those words apply to him. And yet Paul had been on the road to Damascus and he'd been blinded by the bright light. And now the God became for him my God. I'm reminded of 
the upper room when Jesus comes in and Thomas says, I will not believe unless I touch the scars of his wrist and the scar of his side. And Jesus walks in and says to Thomas, come and touch my scars that you may believe. Do you remember Thomas's response in the Gospel of John? My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. So the God on the road to Damascus for Paul had become his God, my God. How about you this morning? Have you come to that point in your own life when you've proclaimed the lordship of the crucified and resurrected Jesus so that the God can now be said, the first person, singular pronoun, my God. I think my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering a prayer with joy. What does Paul thank God for? Have you ever noticed that Paul very rarely ever thanks God for anything but people? He didn't thank God for stuff. He thanks God for people. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. He thanks God for people. Paul is thankful. It is a letter of joy. Philippians, if you had to pick out the letter in which the Apostle Paul is most happy, most joyful, it is Philippians. Now, we learned last week there is a difference, didn't we? Between happiness and joy, Paul is in prison, in Rome, in chains. Is he happy or not? I'm not sure, but he is joyful. In fact, 16 times in Philippians, 16 times the word joy is used. Joy is a celebration of our position in Christ that transcends our circumstances. Joy is a celebration of our position as a child of God through the crucified and resurrected Jesus that transcends our present troubles. Paul's in prison with chains and he says, I have joy. Always offering prayer with joy. And then that verse 6. The crux of our becoming. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it in the day of Christ Jesus. What a powerful word. Now, if you don't hear me say anything else this morning, I want you to hear, hear me say this. The future of believers is certain. The future of believers is certain. I am confident that he who began a good work in you will be able to complete it, to perfect it, to finish it. Now, Paul's confidence is not based upon our frail and weak belief. It is based upon the God in whom we believe. I am confident, not about you, Paul says, I am confident about him. I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will be able to perfect it or to complete it. We are the only people of a certain future. The church, the people of God, are the people with an absolute certain future, and therefore we are to live in the future in the present. He brings up this idea of the day of the Lord until the day of Christ Jesus. Is that Old Testament 
saying of the great day of the Lord. It's that eschatological future when the full kingdom of God comes in all power and all reigning wisdom. I am confident that God who started the good work and you will be able to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so we are the ones who live and view and make decisions in view of the day of Christ Jesus. And knowing that changes the decisions that we make today. Look over at chapter 3 and verse 12. He, he says it the same way. Not that I've already obtained it or already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, look at this. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Forgetting what's in the past and reaching to the future. We live in the future in the present, Paul says. Well, very quickly, I'm going to give you six words, about one minute per word, about what it means in this becoming and perfection of the end. The first word is love. Back to Philippians 1.9. For this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment. The first word is love. It's a sacrificial kind of love. It's a forbearing kind of love. I, I know you're loving, but I want you to love still more and more. If you are becoming in Christ, you are loving more. Living to the future means loving more. There's, there's a second word. It's the word wisdom. Notice verse 9 again. In real knowledge and discernment. On Sunday nights we're studying Proverbs and we've learned that wisdom is not the same as knowledge. It's the, the ability to discern the right choice and the right path for your journey. I want you to love more and more, but I want you to make good decisions today based upon the future. Thus, you're living in the future and the present. May you have that knowledge and wisdom to do that. The third word is the word essential. The word essential. So that you may approve of the things that are excellent. That's better translated essential. That you may approve of the things that are essential. Now perhaps you've seen one of these survivor shows. Don't act like you haven't. They all come in all varieties and kinds. And the idea is the same. Can you be placed in the wilderness, in the rainforest, the desert, wherever it is, and you've got to make your own clothes, Find your own food, start your own fire, build your own shelter, or you're going to perish. And people start out, oh yeah, I can live in the wilderness, I can live in the rainforest, I can do it. There's no problem. There's one that has a title, something like this, Uncovered and Needing Courage. It's something like that. And in that particular show, the people get to choose one item they consider essential. One guy chose duct tape. I thought, well, you're crazy, man. Why would you choose, if you could choose one thing to go in the rainforest, why would you take duct tape? Ah, he made a duct tape cup, and he was drinking out of a duct tape cup. And next thing I knew, he wrapped his feet in duct tape, and he could walk through the thorns. And I thought, this guy's bright. He built his shelter with duct tape. And I thought, man, that's not a bad choice. It's a big roll of duct tape. may take you a long way. The next guy chose a mosquito net. And I thought, I don't know about that. And, but at night, the bugs didn't bite. And during the day, he'd go in the river and catch the fish with a net. 
Somebody else said, oh, no, the one essential thing I need is a fire starter. If you have fire, you can boil your water, right? And, and you can keep the bugs away with a fire, and you can cook your food. You can't eat raw food, so you need, you need fire. And you, you see a machete. I mean, you got to be able to cut the brush, to build the shelter, to kill the animals that come your way, or defend yourself, or whatever. You need a machete to clean the, the kill that you have to cook a machete. Well, it's the same kind of idea here that as you live in the future and the present, you will know what is essential. Karl Barth put it this way, small things should be seen as small and great things great to us should seem. And Christ is this way. Because we live in the future and the present, it's not about money now, it's about morality. Money won't do you any good in the future. It's not about greed now, it's about grace. Greed won't do you any good in the future. You see, it won't be about me first because in the future it's all about God. It is about God first. Well, the fourth word quickly is blameless. To that which is essential and then why? In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. There's that future again, the great day of the Lord, the day of Christ. Until then, he keeps pointing you to live by this day. You see that? The blameless has the idea of purity. You will make different decisions today if you're thinking about the return of Christ, right? That's what he's saying. Well, there's another word, the word fruitful. Having been filled, verse 11, with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. It's not a fruit of your own. He is the vine. We are the branches. It is a fruit of righteousness. It is bearing fruit for God's kingdom. To be full of the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. And then there's a last word. I want you to notice this. The last word is praise. Having been filled with the fruit of the righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Every living creature has one intended end or purpose, one telos. That is to bring glory and praise to God. Every living creature. In fact, I might can make a pretty good biblical argument that even every inanimate object has but one reason every part of creation has but one reason to exist and that is on the day of Christ we all bring glory and praise to God that's why we exist we're going to be one big choir singing never stopping singing praise to God in fact Jesus said as he entered on Palm Sunday when they said silence your disciples he said oh if I silence my disciples what the rocks will cry out and praise me so look how it ends to the praise and the glory of God so what kind of Christian are you are you a one marshmallow or a two marshmallow kind of Christian will you think about the future and I'm not asking you to wait for 15 minutes I'm asking you to wait until Christ returns and I don't know when that is nor do you but every decision we make in knowledge and discernment and love, being pure and blameless and praise and glory and finding out what's really essential all comes down to the fact that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it.
until the day of Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Oh God, help us to be the one people on the planet that live in the future and the present. That every decision we make in the here and now is based on the hereafter. That already we live in the confidence and security of being citizens of heaven, as Paul will say in this book. Give us, indeed, your grace and peace.